Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of James. Today we start a new series through a new book, and that is the letter of James. We'll be looking simply at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Father, we ask as we begin a new year and we begin a new book of your word that you would indeed draw our hearts closer to you. We pray that for the children. We pray that for us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was interviewing for the position here as senior pastor, when they contacted me, I was preaching through the book of James at my other church, and I was asked if I would preach that series here. And so here we are this morning. We're going to begin that, and I'd like to begin by doing an introduction to the book. And so this will be a little bit different, just giving us the lay of the land so we have a better understanding of the big picture and how all the parts fit together in that picture. And so we're looking at the letter of James. And the letter of James is a wisdom book, wisdom literature. It's equivalent to the Proverbs in the, Old Testament, in the Old Testament, but it's a little bit different. It's not arranged like Proverbs. It's a letter. Uh, he wrote a letter while at the same time employing the use of Proverbs, as we'll see as we go through it. The book has a clear plan. It has an introduction. It has a subdivided middle section there, and then there's the conclusion. Um, However, because it's a a book of wisdom, the genre of wisdom, it's not quite the same as, say, one of Paul's letters. Uh, um, Actually, uh, some have said, and and I tend to agree with this, that this was a sermon that James preached, and then sermons, or, or a sermon, and then it was put into letter form. And so he took his notes and put them aside, and then later arranged the material And the letter we have before us is from that sermon. And that makes sense. But in either case, the book is a unit and it has a main theme. And the main theme is found in the words of chapter 2, verse 26. Faith apart from works is dead. And so the, the question the book of James will answer is this. What does living by faith look like? That's why the book's so popular. It's, it's a practical book. It strips away all the long discourse, and, and it gets right to the point. And that's what we'll find here. He gives us the facts of what a living faith produces. Paul, in his letters, uh, he kind of emphasizes an inner saving faith. James emphasizes an outward living faith. How our faith works itself out in the many areas of our lives. See, James will deal with a bunch of everyday issues that we all face, Uh, trials, he'll talk about poverty, he'll talk about riches, he'll talk about showing favoritism, he'll deal with social justice, he'll talk about the tongue, he'll talk about worldliness, he'll talk about boasting, he'll talk about planning for the future, he'll talk about prayer and illness and many more things. And of the 108 verses, that's all it is, uh, 59 of those verses are commands, And so the book of James deals with the crucial relationship between saving faith and active works. 
It's the balance between right belief, orthodoxy, and right practice, orthopraxy. It's a book about ethics. Uh, Christianity must not only be believed, it must be lived out. And so you see, a Christianity that does not result in a changed life is really no Christianity at all. That's what James is teaching. He says in verse 14 of chapter 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? There's the question, and James answers it. No, it cannot. Uh, True saving faith results in active obedience to the commands of God. And James shows us what it looks like in our day-to-day life. He'll tell us. uh, One good way to outline the book, as one commentator points it, he'll tell us in chapter 1, verses 2 to 18, that faith without perseverance is dead. And then he'll go on in chapter 1, and he'll say that faith without obedience is dead. And then we'll go to chapter 2, and he'll say that faith without unbiased love is dead. And then the rest of chapter 2, that faith without good works is dead. And he'll keep going on. Chapter 3, that faith without practical wisdom is dead. And in chapter 4, that faith without intimacy with God is dead. And the rest of chapter 4, that faith without submission to the will of God is dead. Chapter 5, faith without the fear of God is dead. And chapter 5, the last verses, that faith without fervent, effectual prayer is dead. That's one way to... To look at it. You see, all those virtues that I just mentioned, perseverance, obedience, unbiased love, good works, practical wisdom, intimacy with God, prayer, submission to God's will, the fear of God, all those virtues show that your faith is alive and well. And so again, that is why the book is so well loved. It's practical. It's straight to the point. It makes clear what is expected of us to know if we are saved. However, that practicality is a double-edged sword. One writer says, on the one hand, we appreciate his clarity and his directness. But on the other, it doesn't take long to realize as you're reading the book that the life James calls us to live is a life that we're unable to offer. We're not able to do it. And so we struggle with this tension Tension between the sternness of James' demands and our ability to follow them, our ability to attain them. See, if it was the Apostle Paul in one of his letters, what he would do is he'd begin by focusing us on redemption. He would tell us, here's how you live. You can't do that. you got to focus on your redemption. You've been united to Christ. Christ has died for you. He's resurrected for you. He would point us to the cross, to our justification, but James doesn't do that. Do you know he only mentions Jesus twice in this letter? In verse 1, we just read in chapter 1, and then in verse 1 of chapter 2. In fact, when he talks about faith, it appears 14 times in the letter. But 11 of them appear in chapter 2 where he's stressing that faith must produce works. He's not talking about being justified by faith, by having a faith that saves us. That's not his point. And that is one of the reasons why the book early on wasn't accepted as part of the canon, part of the the books of the Bible. Luther changed his mind um, later in his life, of course. He recognized it was part of the inspired Word of God. But early on, he said it was an epistle of straw. 
he thought it contradicted the teachings of Paul on justification. Why? Because it, it focused on works. However, that's not true, and he realized that. It, and, and maybe the best way for us to understand and hear the gospel of grace in the letter of James, one preacher says, is to look to the person of James himself. Look to him. And so look at verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the author of the book of James has been disputed over the years, We know his name is James, and we know that he was well-known, or he wouldn't just put his first name, he would have described himself in some way. Uh, But which James is he? Well, since he just calls himself James, as I said, it's pretty popular. And there are three Jameses in the New Testament that would fit this description. James, the son of Alphaeus, he was the brother of Matthew and one of the 12 disciples. There's James, the son of Zebedee. He's the brother of John and one of the 12 disciples. And then there's this James who was the half-brother of Jesus. Well, James, the son of Alphaeus, is not talked about or well-known. He's rarely mentioned at all in Scripture. And James, the brother of John, was martyred. And so he couldn't have written the book, which almost certainly then points us to James, the half-brother of our Lord. He is the author. And there is much we can learn about him First, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers, didn't believe in him. He, he walked with Jesus, he, he lived with Jesus, and he did not believe in Jesus. However, by Acts 15, so sometime between John chapter 7 and Acts 15, we find James, the half-brother of our Lord, serving as the head of the church in Jerusalem. He, he, in Acts 15, we have the first general assembly. And all the apostles are there, and the elders are there. The churches were gathered to discuss, to discuss this um, important issue between the Jew and Gentile relations, and particularly about, they wanted to talk about circumcision. And, and James presided over that assembly. He was the one presiding. We read about it in Acts 15. All the assembly fell silent, and Barnabas and Paul talk, and they relate all the things God has done among the Gentiles. And after finishing speaking, James replied. And James replies, he explains his position. We're dealing with this thing on circumcision. We're dealing with the law and its relationship, Jew and Gentile. And, and he says, look, I agree with Paul, and therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so you see, he serves as the head of this assembly. The, the church post uh, the ascension of Christ is beginning, and James, the half-brother of our Lord, is the one presiding. And so somewhere between John 7 and Acts 15, God changed James' heart. Now, we're not told when he was converted, but we do know that Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, and we read that in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and after this, we read in Acts 1, chapter 14, I mean, verse 14, that he is in the upper room praying when waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and so sometime in that time period, after Jesus appears to him, obviously that would have been pretty effective um, in helping him understand. He, he goes from an unbeliever in his half-brother, Jesus, to a disciple of Jesus, to a church leader. And it's his leadership 
And, and at the assembly, the one we just looked at there in Acts, and the verdict that he rendered, that he agreed with Paul and didn't want to bother the Gentiles, it demonstrates for us, if we understand this, that it, it does not allow his insistence on keeping the law to overshadow the gospel. As I said, over half of his book is law. And, and so it's no surprise that he was given the title James the Just. And in the early church, he had a passion for personal righteousness. And he had a passion to promote justice and righteousness in others as well. And it's evident in almost every sentence of the book. I mean, that's the emphasis. You can't read James without seeing it. He calls the commands of God the perfect law. In chapter 1, verse 25, he calls them the royal law in chapter 2, verse 8. He calls them the law of liberty in chapter 2, verse 12. And yet, as you study it, you realize that he does not bring up anything about food laws or circumcision or or even the Sabbath. All those things were hallmarks of the Jewish law keeping. He doesn't talk about them. And so that speaks volumes. The silence there speaks to his ultimate passion. Let me, let me explain. At the Jerusalem council, he sides with the apostle Paul, as I said, and does not require that the Gentiles be circumcised. He does require some aspects of distinctively Jewish law. They are to abstain from things polluted by idols, he says, for example. But in his letter, all those things are absent. He doesn't dwell on them. And so we see that James' passion for the law and them keeping the Jewish law was subordinate to his greater passion for the gospel and the unity of the church. Gospel unity. One writer says he had a zeal for legal righteousness, but a greater zeal for the grace of God. Now I say all this because I want you to read the letter in that proper context when we're studying it. Over the course of our study, we'll be looking at over 50 commands. And James says, you must obey them. And we could begin to despair. And so we need to read these commands in the context of, we need to read these commands as part of the grace of God. I mean, not apart from the grace of God. James knows that we cannot keep the commands apart from the gospel, This is why in chapter 2 he says mercy triumphs over judgment. In chapter 4 he says, but God gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In chapter 5 he says the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In chapter 5 verse 16, if we confess our sins, we can be healed, he says. And so you see, beloved, James' call for obedience to the commands he shares, his call to keep the law, his, his insistence that you have to have an act of faith is grounded in the grace of God. And this is why he calls us to an active faith. Because he knows that the grace that saved us from our sin is the grace he gives us to live a life of righteousness, a life of good works, a life of obedience. The pattern we see in James is ours as well. If you're a believer, you were converted by the grace of God. 
you now are growing in the grace of God, and you are to be a servant leader by the grace of God. That's James. James had the law before he was saved. He grew up in a faithful Jewish home. But it wasn't until he saw Jesus resurrected and believed in him that true biblical righteousness became his passion and actually became a possibility. And so his call that he'll be making over and over again to faithful obedience, his call that he'll be making to you over and over again to to spiritual maturity is grounded in the grace of God that saved him from his sin. And so as we study this book, again, this is an introductory sermon, we need to remember that behind every command lies the grace that is needed to keep it. We are not keeping the commands And then God will love us and say, look how righteous they are. It's because God has declared us righteous and we are united to Christ. It's it's about working out Christ's righteousness in our lives, not a works righteousness that saves us. It comes out of the grace of God. Well, as I said, the content of this letter was most likely preached first. And so James is a preacher, and as we study the book, James will indeed step on your toes, as a good preacher should. He's going to get in your face. The Southerners would say he's, he's meddling. You know, he, you know, it's one thing to say this, but now, you, now you're getting involved in my life. He knows this. He doesn't confront you, though, as a Pharisee. He confronts you as a pastor. Uh, the letter is written from a, from a man, a fellow sojourner like us, a sinner like us, a sinner who received the grace of God and now is passionate about living for God. And, and as any good pastor and preacher, he now desires the same for us, for his flock. He's not driven by pride, unlike the Pharisees, but by submission to his master. Look at the passage again. Look at what it says. Look, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word servant there is doulos in the Greek. It means bond servant. It means a slave. It emphasizes that the master has complete control of the slave, and the slave is in total submission. James' honor and authority is based upon the fact that he is a slave of the Lord. That's how he introduces himself. One commentator, I think it was John MacArthur, MacArthur has literally written a whole book on that one word and its importance in the New Testament. And four implications of being a slave, a biblical slave, a bond servant. Um, First, it implies absolute obedience. A slave has no rights of his own. He is bound to give unquestioned obedience to his master. Second, it implies absolute humility. It's a word used of a man who thinks not of his own privileges or his position, but of his duties, not of his rights, but of his obligations. That's the way a slave thinks. Third, absolute loyalty. A slave has no interest of his own, but is utterly pledged to his master. His own preference and profit do not enter into his calculations when he's making decisions. It's all about the master. And fourth, it implies dependence. See, a slave does not have the worries that a free man does. Worries about clothes, lodging, or food. Those are all provided by the master. That are the master's concerns. He is completely dependent on his master in order to survive. Now, we're not talking about the slavery that we faced in our own country here. 
Talk about being a bond servant. But those things, obedience, absolute humility, loyalty, and dependence are what describe a slave. And that was James. That's who he was. I want you to think about this. James could have introduced his letter any number of ways. James, the leader of the Jerusalem council. That would have had some authority, given him some authority. He, he could have said, James, the pastor of the most important church in Jerusalem, in Palestine. He could have said, James, the pillar of the church. That sounds arrogant, but that's what Paul calls him in Galatians, the pillar, a pillar of the church. But maybe most profoundly, he could have said, look, I'm James, I'm the half-brother of our Lord. I mean, imagine having that on your resume. But that's not how he introduces the letter. He deliberately chooses a term to designate himself a permanent slave of Jesus. In complete humility and submission, he refers to his older half-brother, the boy he grew up with under his roof, the one he played with as a kid, he refers to him as his master and Lord. Do you see it, beloved? The true mark of a man or woman of faith is being a doulos, it's being a servant, it's being a slave of the Lord. It's completely submitting to the Lordship of Christ. You cannot, you cannot have Christ as Savior if you do not submit to him as Lord. And so let me ask, is that how you see your relationship with Christ? Do you see it as one of complete obedience, one of humility, one of loyalty, one of dependence? Does your life show that you're a slave of Christ? Does your priorities, your agenda, your desires, your wallet, your speech demonstrate that Jesus is your master and that you are his slave? How you spend your time, how you spend your talents, how you use your treasures, say to the world around you, I have a master, and to him alone I submit and serve. Is that what people would say about you? Would they know it? If not, then you need to question your faith. I need to question my faith, and I need to repent. You see, already James is meddling. He's meddling. First 11 words, he is forcing us to take a good, hard look at our lifestyle and answer if we have true saving faith. See, despite the Christian bumper stickers, you've seen them. If you have them, I want you to immediately, no, go outside and take them off. (laughs) Jesus is not your homeboy. You've seen that one? That's blasphemy. Jesus is my co-pilot. No, he's not. He's not your co-pilot. He doesn't sit in the second seat. He is your Lord. He is your master. He is your king. And you must humbly submit to him. You must bow your knee in submission to the Lord of lords. And there's very good reason to do that. Which leads to another lesson in our passage. Not only does this verse tell us something about James... But James tells us something about Jesus. James puts Jesus on par with God. There's one God in three persons, and James is acknowledging that Jesus is one of the divine persons of the Godhead. Think about it. Imagine writing a letter to friends, 
and, and referring to yourself as the slave of your older brother who you now claim is God. I'm, think about it. Derek Thomas tells of a friend who said that he came to believe that Jesus was God, that he was divine, because of James' words here. What do you mean? He said James, who, who probably slept in the same bed as Jesus when he was growing up as a little boy, he believed the, the half-brother that he played games with in Saul's life, he believed, the guy he didn't believe in at first, believed that Jesus was divine. He, he, he says, if you can grow up with a little boy and call him God <laughs> and call yourself his slave, I don't know what more convincing testimony there could be to the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would agree. Think about it. Here is James. He once doubted his brother. He, he actually said and thought he was crazy. I mean, he did claim to be God. I mean, so it would be tough. You got to understand that. But now he's saying, look, I'm servant of my God and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Not my half-brother, my God and my Savior. And if James' words aren't convincing enough that that's how he believed, what about his life? History tells us in AD 66, James the Just, as I said, he was known, the brother of our Lord was pushed by the Jewish leaders off the wall surrounding the temple into the valley below because of his testimony about Jesus. However, the fall didn't kill him. And after he hit the ground, he stumbled to his knees and began to pray for his murderers. And the only, all that did was outrage the Jews. And so they stoned him to death. Now you tell me what would cause him to be willing to endure such torture other than knowing that who he claimed Jesus was, was who he was. Jesus was the Messiah. Oh, I didn't believe it at first, he may have said, but he was. He was God. This half-brother was also my creator and my redeemer. That's the conclusion he came to. So, see, I'm convinced that James is so passionate about holy living, about living a righteous life, because after Jesus appeared to him and after he believed in Jesus, he probably looked back on his life and said, wait a minute, when I'm honest, I realize not one time was there a slip of the tongue from Jesus. From my half brother. Not one time did he sin. Not, not one time did he make a mistake. He was perfect. And now I'm his doulos. Now I'm his slave. Now I'm his follower. And I have to model my life after his. And, and, and that is our calling as well. Jesus was holy, and, and so now I want to live my life like Jesus. He's my king, he's my master. And so James is writing to you and to me, and when we read the letter, it was written to what? The 12 tribes in a dispersion? That refers to all the people of God. James uses Old Testament terminology to identify New Testament Christians. There's one church, beloved, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, right up to today. We are all, as Paul says, the Israel of God. And in the dispersion means that the readers were scattered, just like the Jews were scattered. And that's just true of me and you as well. Think of Israel in the desert. 
and they're in the desert. James is saying that's who we are. We're, we're like the desert wanderers. And the desert was not easy, was it? it? It was difficult. There were trials. There were temptations. At every turn, they had trouble. They longed for the promised land. And when they didn't long for the promised land and they were thinking of sin, they'd rather go back into slavery than be in the desert. But we're in the desert, and, and that's us. We're, we're like the 12 tribes dispersed throughout a difficult and tempting world. We're the Lord's people now, and yet we're not home. We're not in the promised land yet. We're not in the new heavens and a new earth. See, the point is, beloved, you should expect the world to tempt you. You should expect trials and tribulation. It should not surprise you that 99% of the TV personalities think you're weird for believing in Jesus. And yet, you should expect that. Temptation. You should expect suffering. You should expect trials. You should expect evil. Why? Because that's the desert experience. And that's what we're living in. And James will address all these things. But know this. You are the servant of God most high. You are the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been united to your Savior, just as James has. You have been given the Holy Spirit, just as James has. And so God will watch over you as he did James, and he will give you the victory. He'll win the battle. It's our job to obey. It's our job to submit. It's our job to work. Not for our salvation, but work out our salvation. Martin Luther, the one who denied at the beginning that this was part of the scriptures and then later came to believe that it was, wrote this in one of his most famous songs, A Mighty Fortress. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And it's that kingdom, and it's that king that James calls you to serve. He says, submit to him. Be loyal to him in his kingdom. Depend upon him. Obey him. To to live and even die for him if necessary. And so as we start studying the book of James, are you ready to live a life of faith? Let's pray. Our great God and our heavenly Father, We hear these words, and we may even be excited to want to live for you that way, but we know we fall short. And so even as we begin this letter, we ask that you would remind us of our salvation, of free grace, and then enable us by that grace to live the life you've called us to for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.